have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmela. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode two, The Irish Potato Famine. me. I love to start with a pithy anecdote. So while researching this episode, I made my way over to Google and while starting researching, one of those automated Google questions popped up. You know, the other people searching this topic have also asked. Yes, normally those people are not doing the same kind of research that we're doing. Yet, one of those auto-suggested questions was why didn't the Irish eat other food during the potato famine? Okay, okay, I see where this is going. So Carmela, would you like to learn about what other food was being eaten during the Great Irish Potato Famine of 1845-52? to I would love to hear that. Excellent! Now, I'm going to start out by saying that I have some skin in this game because I did one of those Ancestry DNA tests a few years ago. Are you going to tell me you're like 116th Irish? Yes, I am. Like, I know that my spit is now in some database for the Mormons to baptise me after my death. It's a real thing, look it up. The Mormons are obsessed with baptising dead people. That's why they're so into genetics. Okay. Wrong podcast, but fun fact, Carmela's mind is blown. Huh. I may not get a DNA test then. I want to go to hell as I deserve. (laughs) Genetically speaking, I am really boring. (laughs) Is it like the bit of what we do in the shadows where his DNA test results just say white? (laughs) Yes. I'm 75% British and 25% Irish. (laughs) I'm not surprised by that at all. My ancestry found this rainy island and was like, fuck it, we live here now. I've got a tiny bit of Irish history in me somewhere, but mostly I just think it's really interesting. But Irish history is complicated. Oh yeah. So I'm going to try and sum up how we get to the Irish potato famine with some coherency. Okay, quick fire Irish history, here we go. No promises about the coherency, but let's start at the beginning. England starts messing around with Ireland so early that it's technically still France when it happens. (laughs) Let's speed run this. Okay. We're starting with the Normans. Bill the Bastard, Arrow in the Eye, all of that. After he conquers England, he turns to Ireland, which works out relatively well. We're going with the sweeping generalisations here. We have centuries to cover. But Ireland does all right up until the 14th century. And we all know the 14th century was very tough on Europe. 
when people in Ireland were, quote, so destroyed by hunger that they extracted bodies of the dead from cemeteries, dug out the flesh from their skulls and ate it, and women ate their children out of hunger. I believe that reading that in the episode on the 14th century is what caused us to think that we should probably research this, right? Ding, ding, ding. But if you remember, just before we get to the cannibalism, that in that episode on the Great Famine, the border between England and Scotland was a little tense. Lots of setting a fire of crops. And Ireland gets in on that action too. Oh, very contemporary. <laughs> so stuff gets a bit difficult for everyone. And then there's a plague. So Irish fortunes sort of turn around for a bit. And then there's Henry VIII, because we can't go having a semi-independent Catholic nation right next door now, can we? It just looks bad, guys. So all bureaucratic niceties are overridden, Ireland is reconquered, Henry is king of Ireland, but the Irish are officially allowed to represent themselves in Parliament. Yeah, but England's in control. It all gets a bit, <laughs> a bit messy around here. Because now you have all sorts of different people who are identifying as various forms of Irish. Hmm, yeah. You have the old Irish holding on to Gaelic traditions, language and culture, the predominant Catholic majority, the descendants of historic Norman settler families. They've been in Ireland for centuries, they're also predominantly Roman Catholic, and they feel Irish. And then you have the Protestant Anglo-Irish, who are there as well. They're there as well. But because Ireland isn't being treated very well by England, their loyalties are torn. And then there are the English overseers, who are very English, but own everything. Yeah, those guys. And now... Time for Oliver Cromwell. Oh, hey Cromwell, my old mate. Famously, Cromwell is not Ireland's mate. <laughs> I, I didn't say Ireland's mate, <laughs> I said my mate. <laughs> Things are going a bit to shit in England, that whole civil war thing. And Ireland's not exactly stable. There are uprising, revolts and massacres. And Cromwell comes over and reconquers Ireland. Again, it's estimated that the Irish population dropped between 15 to 83% due to Cromwell's actions in Ireland at this time. Jeez, Louise. You can see why it's a bit contested, there being that statue of Cromwell outside Parliament. Yeah, I could see why maybe that would look like taunting. No, Nicky, no, no. Yeah. But here we are, in Ireland, after it's been ransacked by Cromwell. Vast numbers of people have been shipped off, quite literally, because indentured workers are sent to the colonies. And if the Catholics thought they were being treated badly before, anyone with links to any of the uprisings has their land confiscated, and Ireland is yet again resettled by British colonists. These colonists are known as the Protestant Ascendancy, and things are about to get a lot worse for anyone 
Who isn't them? Cool name for a group, but I don't know. Protestant Ascendancy, it sounds cool. Sounds like a band. Sounds like a folk band. Really bad band. I mean, I'm imagining them in a pub. Sounds that like, sort of level. Sounds like a pub band. Pub band. We the... are Protestant Ascendancy. And we're here with our smash hit, Penal Laws Against the Catholics. <laughs> The Protestant ascendancy don't want the Catholic Irish, whether they're old Irish or Catholic Irish descendants of previous settlers owning land. Because, last time, there was a revolt, and those people must be punished. So therefore, we have even harsher penal laws against the Catholics, who still can't represent themselves in Parliament or actually practice their faith. They just shouldn't be Catholic then, should they, obviously? Spoken like a true member of the hit folk band, the Protestant Ascendancy. <laughs> so we've hit the 17th century, we're still 200 years off, and everyone is already a little bit pissed off. But don't worry, things can get worse. Things can always get worse here at Casting Lots. Now, I don't know if you remember the little ice age that helped to kick off the European famine in the 14th century. I remember it well. I was there as a child. It's still kicking around in the 17th. It's a big ice age. Remember all those lovely frost fairs? Oh, of course. I mean, when was the last time the Thames froze over? Climate change. Welcome to the year of slaughter. Oh, this sounds like a year that I can get behind. 1740 to 1741, an estimated 13 to 20% of the Irish population, a mere 1.4 million, starved to death. Oof, that's a lot of people. Now, I read a fabulous paper called Eating People is Wrong, Famine's Darkest Secret, question mark, I would disagree heavily with that title, but okay. <laughs> and this was surprisingly about cannibalism and famines. And I'm going to trust the conclusions of the author that there was no evidence of cannibalism during this particular famine, mostly because he's an Irish scholar with more sources than I do. Yeah, let's follow on that one then. But this does not mean... There is not other evidence that cannibalism was on people's minds. Through the 18th century, we have another famine. There'd been a famine in 1728 to 1730. And in 1729, an anonymous writer published a pamphlet. And this pamphlet draws attention to the plight of the poor Irish and made somewhat of a modest proposal which could help abate people's suffering. I think I may have heard of this modest proposal. <clears throat> a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is, at a year old, a most delicious, nourishing and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked or boiled, and I make no doubt that it will equally serve in a fricassee or a ragoust. A child will make two dishes at an entertainment for friends, and when the family dines alone, the fore or hind quarter will make a reasonable dish, and seasoned with a little pepper or salt, will be very good boiled on the fourth day, especially in winter. 
infant's flesh will be in season throughout the year, but more plentiful in March, a little before and after. I can think of no one objection that will possibly be raised against this proposal, unless it should be urged that the number of people will be thereby much lessened in the kingdom. It's like the Nigella Lawson of cannibalism writing. Nikrawavi. <laughs> now, allegedly, this was said in the spirit of satire to try and shock people into acknowledging the plight of the starving Irish. But it doesn't make cannibalism in the case of famine any less true. It also sounds very much like something that one of us would just say. I'm not sure we can be compared to Jonathan Swift. <laughs> you know, I'm just very modest. Get out. <laughs> anyway, okay, where was I? Island. We're speeding our way through the 18th century into the 19th, and hello, it's the Act of Union in 1801. Hello, Act of Union. This, in theory, means that the people of Ireland are on a par with the English, Welsh and Scottish. In theory. We're all one big happy country. I mean, we're not one big happy country now, so why we thought that was going to work in 1801? Was it a case of thinking it would work, or of hoping that if you say it was the case, people would just have to go along with it? I think the latter. Mm. Despite everything, however, the Catholic rural population is growing. Even as Anglo-Irish landlords start the process of land enclosure, limiting land holding of the majority, the Protestant ascendancy own 95% of all Irish land. Wow. And also, say hello to some economic agricultural history. We are going to shift our way from meat production to growing grain for export for Anglo-Irish and plain Anglo profit. Classic. Ireland is known as the breadbasket of Britain for how much food it exports to the mainland each year. But amid all of this export, there is a slight problem. Is it that there's no food left in Ireland? Yes. People need to feed themselves. This is where it gets a little bit this is where it gets complicated. It's been complicated since 1066. Most people clearly don't own their own land, with 75% of land being owned by the ascendancy. According to the reports of the poor law inspectors on the wages of agricultural labourers in Dublin, 1870... Sounds like a thrilling read. My research is always... <laughs> <laughs> it is always... Continuous, never-ending. Quote... Previous to the famine, the labourer enjoyed his cabin with a rood or half acre or acre of land and facilities for a crop. Because tenant farmers working for landowners often weren't paid in currency, they worked in exchange for being allowed to farm a poor area of farmland for themselves. Mm. A minimal space, and there's only really one crop that can sustain a whole family? Potatoes. The potato. Carmela looked like she was not confident that the main crop of this episode was the potato. 
I thought it was a trick question. Nope. It's the potato. We have reached the potato of the famine. Just so we can get it out of our system before we get going after that speed run of Irish history. Carmella, what's the name of the blight that caused the Irish potato famine? The English. Okay, we've got that out of our system. We all knew it was coming. I, in fact, had that written into the script even before I started researching because I knew we were going to make that joke. (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. This is a prime episode for slagging off the English. Ourselves. Yeah, I was like, it's a valid pastime. Bit masochistic, but deserved. Let us start with the blight itself. It's not just the English but it's a common pathogen called Phytophora infestans, Herb 1. Mmm, easy to say, memorable, catchy. Don't ask me what it means. It is apparently an umsiet. Umitsi. I don't know. But, if you'd like to get your hands on some, a specimen is still kept at Kew Gardens. Oh, just in case. It seems like a recipe for disaster to me. Breach containment! Ah. The blight travels across the Atlantic from where it originates in South America. And in the summer of 1845, it hits Europe. Irish farmers noticed dark splodges on the leaves of their potato plants. And when the potatoes were pulled from the ground, they were, quote, shrunken, mushy and inedible. Mm. My cooking. (laughs) In the first year, 1845, harvest yields were cut in half. By 1846, that was down to a quarter. Blight has a smell. People could sense the rotting under their feet. A third of the crop was completely destroyed. And I know I keep harking back to season two, episode three, but... If we remember Alex's fun discussion about crop yields... Yes, I remember it so well. You frequently replay it to yourself. (laughs) Farmers know exactly how much of a crop they can afford to lose. Some to sell, some to eat, some to replant, and a buffer for failed crops. So this diminishing return is already spelling out disaster for the people of Ireland. Or do I mean the Irish of Ireland? Yes. Because the Anglo-Irish and, in some cases, the out-and-out English landlords and landowners are still keen to turn a profit. It's not really a hands-on job being a landlord. You can get your middlemen to collect the rent, get someone else to deal with the labourers, be an absentee landlord and have money sent out to you. Yeah, if there's 30% of the crop left, just sell all of that. Who needs to eat, right? Is that what they're thinking? Today's episode is sponsored by Absentee Landlordism. (laughs) (laughs) Question. You're at the beginning of a famine. You're a farmer. Okay. You have minimal crop returns. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do with them? Eat them, plant them, or sell them? You can only do one. The... Most sensible thing to do would be to plant them. In the middle of a blight? Mm, true. 
This one is a trick question. It's lose-lose. Yeah. If you sell them, you'll have some money, but there might not be crops to purchase. If you eat them, they're gone. If you plant them, they might get blighted. Hmm. I I think I'm probably going to eat my family. Is that an option? (laughs) (laughs) Said so casually. (laughs) It's worth noting that it's not just in Ireland that this is happening. The potato crop across Europe is being affected. Belgium, Prussia, Netherlands and France are all being hit by the potato blight. But no other population in Europe is as dependent on the potato as the Irish. Mm. Now, I know it's sort of a joke at this point, 200 and so years on, but it really is a matter of life and death. And oh boy, are we coming to the death. In the name of balance... I went on the UK government's website. Oh, ho, ho. do you please tell me what they had to say. They have a history section and, quote, A high proportion of Irish MPs were landowners or their sons. Parliament was fully aware of the situation. Yes, you would. one would hope so, considering the lives of people in the British Empire. Does aware of mean the same thing as affected by, caring about, doing something about? To begin with, sort of. Okay. There was an attempt. The Tories, I know. Those guys. Yeah, those guys try and bring in food from overseas and public work and relief efforts are set up. Robert Peel tries to sneak things in around the advocates for the free market. Oh. Yeah. There is an attempt. I mean, this is done in the belief that the famine will be over quickly and it won't cost a lot of money. Oh, I've seen that kind of optimism from the UK government before. Oh, just wait. Just you wait. The problem isn't necessarily that there's no food in Ireland. It's that it's too expensive for the poor to afford. Those who rely on the potato as their main crop. Technically, various grains can still be exported because, well, there's a free market. Now, this hasn't always happened. In other famines, even other famines in Ireland... The year of slaughter, for example, ports were closed, keeping Irish-grown food inside the country. This leads to a drop in food prices and helps abate starvation. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, not this time. (laughs) Let's talk about the Corn Laws. Oh, you know what? Corn Laws is one of those things where I've heard the word many times in my life and often thought to myself, I must find out precisely what that means. And never have. So, Alex... Please educate me on the details of the Corn Laws. I literally have just a note in my script here being like, I'm sorry, I'm so boring. (laughs) Um, But Corn Laws restrict the amount of foreign grain that can be imported into a country. The idea is to make sure that homegrown food is readily available and not undercut by cheaper imported grain. That makes sense. This can artificially keep the price of bread and other grain goods high. That isn't really helping the poorest in society. Yeah, okay, I get you. Especially during a famine. So, to recap, 
the limit on the amount of grain you can import has remained in place despite there being a famine. Robert Peel wants to repeal these laws. Repeal. Yeah, repeal, peel. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's very funny. But this idea uh, pisses people off. Which people? The economy people. Those ones. I thought it might not be pissing off the people who were like starving to death. No, they have quite different fiscal aims than, say, the Treasury. Yeah. Robert Peel's efforts to repeal the Corn Lords, and he had really been trying. He'd bought £100,000 worth of sweet corn. I hate sweet corn. If you are starving to death, you will eat sweet corn. Mm. It goes potato, human flesh, sweet corn in Carmela's triangle of food needs. Yeah, yeah. He brings in the sweet corn ration. He has these relief committees set up to distribute it in Ireland and has public work projects set up. Now, these projects I mentioned earlier, they're not great. You have to do hard labour in order to qualify to be paid mid-famine. And you're then paying for imported corn. But it's better than not doing anything. Yeah, it's a low bar, but... You've got to be able to step over it. And when he tries to have these corn laws repealed, uh, he gets ousted. He's gone. You don't want to mess with the economy. I will say this for Peel. I feel like I'm on a really strong Robert Peel vibe here. Um, I'm not because, oh my God, wait for the politicians that follow, then you'll understand. Ah, I see. Best of a bad fun. Yeah. On record, no one dies due to famine in the winter of 1845. And that's when Peel's doing stuff. That's when Peel's doing stuff. Goes to show, even conditional relief efforts save lives. Who knew? Well done, Peel. So this isn't a last. Peel's gone, new government's in. And the new government are believers in the uh, laissez-faire economic model. Oh, that one. Who gives a shit? It'll just sort itself out eventually, won't it? <laughs> Famines don't last more than a year. Oh, whatever. 1846, the first year of sustained famine. People have already sold all that can be sold, scavenged what can be scavenged, and stolen the remains. There are deaths on a significant scale by that winter. All of the big hitters when it comes to famine disease, they're out to play. We've got typhoid, we've got fever, and these deaths are still marking the landscape of Ireland. There are mass unmarked graves for the tens of thousands who died during this time. But, don't worry, I can see you look concerned, Carmela. I'm sure it's all going to get better now. Alex, I hear you cry. What about the English economy? What about the English economy? I'm so glad you've asked. We're so worried about the English economy. Even though English officials by this time in 1846 are saying that Ireland's in trouble. But don't worry. So Roundoff Ruth, and I'm going to do an obnoxious, awful accent for him. Don't worry. I'm sure he deserves it. He is the chair of the Relief Commission. He sees this whole famine thing as an opportunity. Mm, career development. Worse than that. 
The little industry called for to rear the potato and its prolific growth led the people to indolence and all kinds of vice, which habitual labour and a higher order of food would prevent. I think it very probable that we may derive much advantage from this present calamity. Ah, so potatoes made Irish people lazy, and if they all die of the famine, they won't be lazy anymore? I think they'd be significantly lazier. <laughs> because they'd be dead. Yeah. Wow, that's, um, it certainly is a take that he's got there. So he's in charge of the Relief Commission. I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that relief efforts are halted. <laughs> well, you know, you've got to make them motivate themselves. Parliament legislates to put the responsibility for famine relief onto Irish landowners. Ah. Be because why should the English pay for it? Let's ignore the Act of Union and we're all one big happy country now. And the fact that the English have been making the most money off of the Irish for this time. I don't know what you possibly mean. So those Irish landowners, Anglo-Irish and Irish, are in turn trying to save money by evicting their tenants. Tenants who, for the most part, aren't getting paid but have land rights and the ability to sustain themselves from their own harvest. Mm. Or rather, had. But don't worry. Grain is still being exported out of the country for profit. Oh, you'd, we've got to have these constant check-ins on how the English economy is doing, because I'm just so concerned. Now, this is a bit of a sore point, because as we covered earlier, it isn't necessarily just the absence of food that's causing the issue, but the inability to access it. Yes. There are arguments about the ethics and logistics of export and protecting the economy and the cost of human lives. Now, doesn't that sound familiar from the British government? Oh, yeah. If there's no financial incentive to produce, then why would farmers keep farming? Technically, more food is imported into Ireland between 1845 and 46 than is exported, but food coming in isn't necessarily being used to feed the hungry, it's being used to feed livestock, export and ironically some food had to be exported to pay the rates levied to support those affected by the famine following the act of parliament love that love that you know sometimes when people explain to me all of various import and export and border laws it's like how did we break the world so much this is this is all made up right the economy's not real, guys. I know, it's madness. But yes, following 1847, all famine relief has to be paid for for taxes raised in Ireland. The Irish economy has to somehow keep going to levy the funds to pay for its own relief. It's all made up. Astrology for men. Astrology for men. Sir Charles Trevelyan assistant secretary to the treasury actually cuts the pay for those who are in the public works programs great and those programs actually close in 1847 as well he calls the famine are you ready for this oh boy what does he call the famine alex 
the judgment of God to teach the Irish a lesson. Thunder? I think that was thunder. That was impressively timed. (laughs) Is the lesson that the English are bad? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much the essence of what God has taught the Irish. The poor laws are altered to ensure that only the most destitute can receive any aid at all. There's a vote in Parliament that in order to qualify for famine relief, you have to forfeit your land. Um, that really seems like there's an ulterior motive going on there. This leads to starving farmers giving over the land, which is their wages, back to their landlords before they receive any assistance. Mm. People are being evicted for profit, being evicted to pay their own famine relief. Now, hashtag not all landlords. (laughs) There are some people who don't evict their tenants and don't burn down their houses and do forgive rents. Oh, wow. Every, you know... Heroes. Heroes, exactly. They're not exactly in the majority. Up to half a million people are evicted. Guess who's getting richer and who's getting poorer? Hmm, I'm going to say the Anglo-Irish landlords are getting richer and the Irish workers are getting poorer. Yes, Ten points to Carmella. Thank you. It was a difficult question, but I got there in the end. Strangely enough, by 1847, the English are getting a bit concerned that Irish nationalism might, you know, rise up. People might start taking offence at what's going on in their country. There might be another of those violent rebellions. So here come the military. Oh, great. Great. Let's wheel those guys in. Love them. But... Before things get worse, I would like to point out, just as we've seen in some other cases, some people are good. A bold statement from Alex here at Casting Lots. (laughs) There are charitable endeavours. Catholic priests, Protestant charity workers and Quakers all start up private relief efforts. Okay, there are some instances of convert to my religion or starve to death. Classic. Religion is still a bit of a sore subject in Ireland. Understatement, I think. (laughs) But for the most part, these charitable efforts are altruistic. There are donations from around the world. The Irish diaspora in America send over a million dollars worth of food. The Choctaw and Cherokee nations, despite their own poverty, donate $800. There's quite a famous memorial to this in Ireland in Cork. The Queen Victoria Appeal raises £100,700. The Tsar of Russia, the Sultan of Turkey, all donate money to the Irish cause. The Pope calls on Catholics around the world to help the Irish. The French people donate £50,000 great that everyone else is doing the charity work that England should probably just be trying to do. None of this is enough. There is, however, a brief moment in 1847 where it looks like, not that things will be okay, but things might not be getting worse. Like we're plateauing. Exactly. You know, if we can just keep going, maybe things won't continue to go downhill. Mm Mm-hmm. 
even though Mr. God's just teaching the Irish a lesson Trevelyan closes down the public works scheme, there are soup kitchens that are opened up in the spring of 47. These relatively cheaply feed 3 million people a day. That's pretty successful. These are paid for via loans that Ireland is expected to pay back. Oh yeah, yeah, there we go. That sounds more like it. But that year, blight doesn't return to the harvest. So it's a bad harvest after two years of famine. There's not enough yield. People are starving and weak and poor. Thousands have been evicted from their homes. But there is a harvest. Mm-hmm. With a bit of support, perhaps things could get back to some sort of normality. Now, because I know what podcast this is, I'm going to assume that's not the way things go down. Things could get better. Or the famine could be declared officially over by the summer of 1847. All relief measures are cancelled. Go fend for yourselves. I think the second one is what happened. Welcome to Black 47. Catchy. The Irish are quite good at coming up with names for these things. I still quite like the year of slaughter. Yeah. Thousands of people are evicted. Whole villages and settlements just disappear. People beg to enter workhouses. People are dying, quote, with hunger. And then the blight returns and returns. That must just be a, like a real blow. I can't even imagine how horrible that must feel. To be serious for a moment. The food crisis only ends in Ireland in 1852 and the ramifications of the Great Hunger are still felt today. Mm. One in eight people on the island of Ireland die during the famine. And we've only just gotten started. But Alex... You've been talking for hours and haven't even got to the cannibalism yet. 50 minutes, actually. Oh, well, I'll keep going then. <laughs> and in part, that's deliberate, because we might have talked about it before in terms of disasters, but there's something called famine fatigue, and it denotes the end of interest and compassion in a continuous disaster. Because these donations and charity support to support the struggling Irish in 1846 and 47 start to dry up by 48 and 49. And I'm bringing that fatigue here because it's during the famine fatigue, the isn't this over yet mentality, that some of the worst events take place. Now, there is a reason this episode is in season three. And I'm sure we're going to come across this more and more as we delve into the less cited sources of survival cannibalism. But to be honest, our sources are getting paltry and thinner. And yes, I am ashamed of the fact I wrote that sentence without thinking, so I included it in the script so I could call myself out. Self-awareness, that was inappropriate. <laughs> The vast majority of our sources for survival cannibalism during the Irish potato famine are anecdotal. And it's worth remembering that the vast majority of the most devastated populations were illiterate. First-hand testimony from survivors would have been in Gaelic as opposed to in English. 
we are predominantly reliant on the words of the clergy and those acting for charitable reasons to record the stories of survival cannibalism which they encountered. These people will have their own reasons for including or not including what they've seen. While we may consider survival cannibalism almost conventional in the 19th century, we have a skewed worldview. I do worry about us sometimes. It is worth noting that for the English, survival cannibalism is predominantly something that is associated with unprecedented disaster at sea, or even worse, the French. (laughs) Am I wrong? (laughs) You speak true. It's not something that should be happening in the British Empire to British citizens under the direct control of Parliament. And yet, there are sources which indicate that survival cannibalism was one of the methods used by the starving and destitute Irish to try and save themselves. I know it's a bit the purge, but people don't necessarily behave brilliantly in life or death situations. Fair enough. Radical statement to make, I know. There were over 20,000 reported crimes in Ireland in 1848 alone. I mean, you sort of have to do what you have to do to get by, right? At that point. Violence, desertion, murder. And when people are starving, as we know, people are reduced to eating sustenance that barely registers as food. We have examples of people eating bark and grass. Those two were really neutral and the final one in my list is horrific. And putrefying emaciated farm animals. It's quite a shopping list. Mm. Dr Brendan McSuvner, author of The End of Outrage, says To eat food that is subhuman is an index of how far you have been reduced. But the ultimate is that you end up eating another human being. I mean, I get where he's coming from, but that seems a bit judgmental. I don't know. Like, that's the most degrading and inhuman thing you can ever do. I didn't take it that way. I took it as the concept of subhuman food is the bark and the grass. Yeah. And it's showing, but that's showing how you've been reduced in terms of your personhood. Yeah. I mean, we don't advocate cannibalism for the sake of it. Yeah. Like, something has had to go very badly wrong for you and your situation. There are recorded instances of survival cannibalism in counties Cork, Kerry, Galway and Mayo in Ireland from 1847 onwards. Granted, these are rare, but they are also, crucially for us, witnessed and attested to. Mm. (laughs) Crucially for your scripts, Alex. (laughs) What can I say? I like facts. (laughs) Father Peter Ward, a parish priest in County Mayo, wrote to his archbishop of a scene that he'd come across in Dimcraggy. In the village of Dimcraggy, four were dead together in a poor hut. Brother, two sisters and daughter. The flesh was torn off the daughter's arm and mangled in the mouth of her poor dead mother. William Walsh of Mount Partree and his son were found dead together. Their flesh was torn off their dead bodies. Flesh was found in their mouths. 
His wife and child died the week before of hunger. This is what happens during famine. We know this. We know this now and it was known then. It was known in Ireland and it was known in Westminster. Yes, but did Westminster do anything about that? We already know the answer to that. (laughs) And it's go and deal with it yourselves. God's made his judgment. That's interesting, though, that both of those scenes describe bodies being found dead with flesh in their mouth. That's very odd. Do you think that's been written for effect and isn't to be taken literally? Or is that literal? It seems like surely the point when you would die of starvation would be after the flesh had run out, not whilst it was literally in your mouth. But if you're so weak that you're unable to... To swallow it and digest it. Yeah. Yeah. Because there comes a point where... Yeah, you can't recover. Maybe. In the May of 1849, Reverend James Anderson wrote to the Prime Minister, Lord John Russell, telling of a starving man who had eaten the heart and liver from a shipwrecked corpse. Quote, And that was the maddening feast on which he regaled himself and his family. This open letter was reported in the press and was even raised in the House of Commons by the MP for Kerry. I mean, I understand that it sounds quite gruesome, but... I mean, it, like, the, he's already dead and you don't even know him. I think on the tears of survival cannibalism, that one's less horrible than the ones where you eat your own children. True, but I am going to um reference back to that conversation we had, I think, off recording, that we have a slightly warped scale. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, sorry, you're right. That's also unpleasant. Things don't change in Ireland. In fact... Queen Victoria goes to Ireland in 1849 because everything's fine now. Oh, I bet everyone really appreciated her visiting. Charles Trevelyan gets a knighthood. Oh, well, I mean, he was so correct in all of his opinions. Well, it's a job well done, isn't it? Famine's over. You can try and fix a problem, or you can stick your fingers in your ears and pretend the problem has already resolved itself. Naming no British governments. (laughs) But this does seem like a popular strategy that has re-emerged in the 21st century. Now this is going to be a bit of a curveball for you. But to quote Karl Marx... Okay, never going to say no to this. The Irish famine of 1846 killed more than a million people, but it killed poor devils only. To the wealth of the country, it did not the slightest damage. Is that true? I feel like it probably impacted their economy. Yeah, it was exaggerated a bit for effect. I think Karl Marx did have perhaps an angle that he was going for. He has, yeah, skin in that game. But over a million people die. That is true. The population of nearly every town is halved. Another near two million people emigrate. There is the destruction of a whole culture, community and people. Some argue that the famine was technically a genocide. But as a legal construct, the fact that the famine and its lack of management targeted an entire social group because of their class as opposed to their ethnicity or religion, it doesn't meet modern criteria for what constitutes a genocide. But Professor Brendan O'Leary of the University of Pennsylvania 
puts forward that the management of the Irish famine may not be genocide, but it is genoslaughter. Yes, it sounds like there's a lot of honour technicalities in there, and when you're talking about mass killing on that scale, is quibbling over technicalities really the way to go? It's hard to deny that the British government saw this natural famine as somewhat of a good thing in cases. I mean, they literally stated that, so... Yeah, yeah. You can try and deny it, but I've got it written down. (laughs) You heard it on a podcast. Come on, guys. Now, we'd be here for the rest of time if I tried to continue Irish history up to the modern day. And into the future. And into the future. The recording never stops. (laughs) Just real time. But the impact of the famine can be seen throughout modern Irish history, especially within the 19th and 20th century rise of Irish nationalism and the development of the Gaelic revival in Irish culture. Prominent Irish Republicans had been children of the famine with memories of their families' evictions, and the famine is a galvanising concept for a free island. What have the British ever done for us? A good question. It's a good question for us as well. With this whistle-stop tour of Irish history, you can see how the famine can be perceived as the final straw, that everything has been building up to something. And it's only 70 years after the famine that the Anglo-Irish Treaty is signed and the Republic of Ireland comes into existence. I mean, that's not the end of the troubles in Ireland. Oh no! But we are not the podcast to delve further into that. I'll end with this. We are only six generations away from those who suffered and died in Ireland today. Thank you for listening to episode two on the Irish potato famine or the Great Hunger. We like to keep things cheerful here. Join us next time where we're putting Carmela's Spanish pronunciation to the test. Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod, and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review, and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmela, with post-production and editing also by Carmela and Alex. Art and logo design by Riley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett, Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio podcast network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio podcast network.
going to make a joke about potatoes. No, I do not. <laughs> Note the absence of Irish accents in this episode. <laughs>